Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Brett. How are you? I'm well. And yourself? Fantastic. It is Friday. You know I love recording on Fridays, although I say mm-hmm. that on pretty Mondays much Mondays too, day. Tuesdays, yeah. I'd say pretty much any day. I just enjoy the practice podcast. I yeah. enjoy recording it. I enjoy listening to it. It's a lot of fun. You know, people ask us why we do it, and I never have a good answer, except that I enjoy it. It's fun. Exactly. There you go. So I was thinking, what are you afraid of? Because, you know, you're like a fearless guy, and <laughs> nothing scares you. I'm curious if there's anything you're afraid of. Uh... I mean, there's many things that I have fear of. You could pick one. (laughs) (laughs) I have a fear of missing the small details. Nice. That's a professional fear. That's a professional fear, but it also could be a personal fear too, right? And I mean, there's some other personal ones, but I don't want to go into those, right? Because I might get in trouble if I do. But no, I mean, honestly, that's what drives, I'd say, really life professionally, personally is preparation, right? So that you don't miss, because the big ones we always talk about, right? The big cases, the big details, you're not going to miss those, right? Because those are going to be top of mind, super important. It's the small details, even in the bigger cases or in the bigger issues that are occurring in life and all, you know, so it's really preparation, and attention to detail. Right. Sometimes the small things become the, become big, the big things. That's well, that, yeah. right. Isn't there, there's that sort of that famous statement that's like, there are no small things, right? you know, and the small things might actually be the big things. So yeah, I just, that'd be my, I guess, fear that I try to overcome by right. preparing not, and, and paying attention. So it's not so much a fear, it's just a focal point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It. How about, I like how about it. that to say I'm fearless? I don't think that's you true. Fearless. You, on the other hand, swimming with sharks, what are you afraid of, if anything? I'm afraid of cognitive decline. Mm. I'm afraid of losing... Have I got a podcast for you that I dementia, just listened to today? and you know, that scares me. And so I'm that's always right. focused on like, that's right. longevity. exercising my mind and longevity yep. and health. And I want to age well. well so. I will share with you offline a podcast I just finished listening to today. And obviously, we're both reading. You would share with me, but you forgot the name of it because you're in cognitive decline. No, I haven't. I'm kidding. I actually literally just finished it. Okay. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Hey, we have a guest. Maybe we should intro our guest. Let's wake him up. Addison Adams. Are you there? Addison Adams. (coughs) Happy to have you. Addison Adams is the founder of Adams Corporate Law. He is an attorney who specializes in mergers and acquisitions for California-based businesses primarily. And he has nearly three decades closing deals, but his expertise is not limited to just M&A deals. He provides corporate and securities advice to all types of businesses from startup to exit for business owners, companies of all sizes across all industries. And his services include investor offerings, financing, contract negotiations, corporate structures, and general business matters. He is a true corporate attorney. Welcome, Addison. Well, thank you to have me here, Jeff, and thank you, Brett. What a privilege to be on your show and fun to listen to your podcast. So thank you. I appreciate that. Can I just, I need to jump in for a second. Our listener doesn't see it, but we do because Addison is joining us from California, so it's on video. 
that background is like such a perfect background yeah. for like interview on TV. Like anytime you see a lawyer <laughs> and just to set the scene for our listener, there's a beautiful bookcase with drawers. There's some nicely placed books and a painting. Tell me about that bookcase. I mean, that is, is that your home office? Is that your office office? Where are you? Oh, that's funny. Thank you. So yeah, this is my home office. I work out of my house as many lawyers do these days. And this is a dedicated office that's all the walls but the window wall have bookshelves on it. And it did come like this when I bought the house, except for I had all the wood refinished. Mm. And so it's got sort of a nice veneer over the wood. Yeah. It used to be a standard yellow oak. Looks and then a lot of the books, there was a law firm that went out of business, shut down when I bought the house. And <laughs> I bought the house in 2012. And so I was able to pick up a whole bunch of old school case style books and treaties and all these kinds of things. And so... The one on my left is the securities regulation, which is helpful. Um, the <laughs> red books on my right are mergers and acquisitions treatise. And then these uh, blue ones are just California code. And if I were to pan up, you would see the California appellate reports. And, you know, nice. kind well, of well, might I say... You used to use in the library, but no longer really do. <laughs> well, might I say that if you would send in a shot to CNN, they for sure would have you appear. Right. Because anytime I've ever seen a lawyer appear on any show, like that is just the That's, quintessential yeah. background. It almost, it almost looks like a virtual background. It really does. But the law books make it. So yeah, the law great, books are great find. Great stuff. So yeah. M&A attorney, have you always practiced M&A and how did you get started? So no, out of law school, I thought I was going to be a trial attorney. So I went to work for a law firm doing class actions, complex litigation, copyright disputes. And I enjoyed it. But then my law school roommate, good friend of mine, gave me a call after several years and said, hey, I'm working at this venture capital law firm up in LA. Why don't you join? So I joined in 2000 and just really and kind of retooled from litigation into corporate transactions and securities compliance. And just absolutely loved it. Just loved the idea of the excitement of closing a deal, the, the win-win nature of business transactions. And so that was how I got my start in it was thanks to Eric Richardson, who I have a lifelong debt to. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, it's amazing uh, how many lawyers tell that story, how they started out on one path and just took a 180. But I would imagine the litigation background is helpful. Do you find it helpful to the corporate transactional practice? I do. I feel that the best lawyers have a certain amount of well-roundedness to them. And so finding the right balance of being a deep specialist, but also having a good understanding of other areas of the law, very important. You know, as far as that age-old issue of book smart combined with street smarts makes for sort of good judgment and wisdom when you're giving advice to your client. So that's, I feel that all the time. I use the background that I've had in litigation, evidence, the idea of the risk of winning or losing and settlement value of cases as a way to assess the likelihood that this risk you've identified in the deal may or may not come to fruition. And, you know, it's real easy to be doom and gloom, including as a corporate attorney. We've all heard of lawyers that over-negotiate, that kill deals, that just scare the pants off of their client because they run through all the what-if scenarios. And that can get to the point where it's not helpful. And so I think it's always a good idea to try to keep things in context and say, look, this is going to turn into a lawsuit. This isn't, you know, this will be resolved. Kind of try to be smart and efficient going forward that way. Even though you have the background, the litigation, which I know is super helpful, are there times where you feel like there's a need or maybe a benefit to the client going into a transaction 
to consult with, whether it's a litigator, maybe even a bankruptcy lawyer, patent lawyer, again, depending on the transaction, tax lawyer, for example, do you feel like sometimes there's a need to do that and that there are some lawyers that tell their clients, now nah, we don't need to do that. Let's just, let's just paper the deal and we're fine. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. In fact, as a deal lawyer, I view my role as the quarterback for the team. And so I know enough to issue spot and to identify when we need to bring in experts. And I do that all the time, including litigation, bankruptcy, tax, ERISA compliance, mm-hmm. labor, all these things. And sometimes it's no more than a 20 or 30 minute check. Sometimes it's more, but it's a good idea to just really leverage the expertise of other professionals as needed. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're all good at what we're good at. And right. what part of that is knowing where you're not as deep as you might as someone else is. Yeah, I think there's a tendency, and I said maybe some of the lawyers may not want to do it, but there's a tendency by the clients maybe to say, hey, I don't want to spend more money. I don't, you know. Another um, lawyer. Another right. lawyer. Like, what are we doing? And I think it's incumbent, like you said, on the quarterback to the transaction to say, well, hang on. You're investing your time. You're investing your money in this deal. We're just trying to make sure that it's a sunny day, but we have to plan for a rainy day and make sure that you're protected. And it sounds like that's something you do, but there are a lot of lawyers that may not do that. And it's on us, right, as lawyers to really advise our clients that, yeah, spending a little bit extra money and time now is going to help you in the long run. Excuse me. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. And I try to make it seamless for the client as well by handling the sort of behind the scenes, pulling in the expertise as needed so that the client doesn't always need to set up a whole separate engagement, things like that. So I have relationships with a number of lawyers that have their own firms where I can just call them, pay them, you know, pass it through to the client and keep things easy and quick and efficient. Yeah, you just anticipated my question, which was, don't we traditionally see M&A lawyers at big firms so they have a whole team of people? And how do you do it on your own? It's, it's pretty impressive. We do. So the way I do it on my own is I've been building this firm for eight, nine years now, uh, since I started my own firm, Adams Corporate Law. And the goal is it's a boutique M&A firm and securities transactions. So we do investor financings, we do fund formation, we do mergers and acquisitions for private and public companies, mostly private. And mostly on the low end of the deal, the mid-market and small market deal sizes. So a lot of stuff in the 50 million, 20 million, 10 million, even down to $1 million range. And so the way we've done that, the way I've done that is I've taken advantage of some freelance attorney relationships and with some affiliate relationships with other firms. For example, I have an amazing tax attorney and his name's Mark Salino. He works at Salino Tax Council. He's his own law firm and he consults with M&A attorneys all over the place. And so I have him on speed dial as needed. I can bring him into the deal and say, hey, I just need to understand in this structure is the rollover piece tax-free as we expect. And is the after-tax going to be taxed this way to the seller as we expect? And he can come in and give me a quick answer to that. And if I need him to review the tax provisions of the asset purchase agreement, he does. It's just the tax piece works out perfect. And so, you know, I don't have enough deals to keep a tax attorney busy full time because I'm a small boutique firm. 
Granted, I have a lot of deals. We're super busy all the time, but it's just a much better use of his time to just kind of divide his day up among lots of law firms. So that works out great. And it's been a good success for me. So if you're willing to share, you said it's been eight years since you started Adams Corporate Law. What led you to sort of do that, right? To become a business owner, an entrepreneur, if you will. And then what have you learned over the last eight years that maybe has been helpful to you in advising your clients who are themselves likely business owners? Yeah, so... Two questions. Let's see if I can jump That's a in compound. On. You can yeah, feel free to object. object. <laughs> feel free to object. But I just wanted to throw those out yeah. there. So my journey was when I joined with Eric Richardson and Nimish Patel and Kevin Friedman up in LA in 2000. We had a small firm that was under 10 lawyers and we grew it to 50 lawyers and three offices from 2000 to 2008. Huge success. Really fun and exciting. And we were heavily invested in public company clients and hedge fund financings. And so we were doing a lot of financing for public traded companies that were small. And 2008 hit our client base big. So we did some shrinking, we had to do some layoffs, and the firm continued on, but looked a little different, more heavily focused on private deals and public deals after that. And at the time, I have two boys. And so for lifestyle reasons, I moved from LA to Orange County. And that's where I live now. And, and in fact, so 2012 is when I bought the house we already talked about. And so now that I was away from the mothership, the main office, it got me sort of thinking about whether the time was right in my career. I mean, at that point, I'm a 96 grad, so I had a fair amount of experience and seniority under me. And so I started thinking about the math and economics and I said, you know, I think I can do this. I've got, a, I've got clients, I've got the skill set. I'm just going to see how this goes. And so I started my own firm and I immediately realized, man, I should have done this a lot sooner. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, owning your own firm is a very different thing than having partners. And, you know, it's not for everybody, but it definitely resonated with me. And so... What I've learned is as far as owning my own firm and from a practice point of view and for the attorneys listening here is I think I've always been a worker bee. I've worked my butt off all the time. I mean, all attorneys do and I still do. And so one of the main challenges that I've always had and still have is with delegating the work to try not to just do everything myself. And that's the thing over the last eight years of owning my own firm that I've been getting better at year after year is pushing more work to other people. And it helps to hire the best of the best and have a great team that can do it and do it right and not need to have close supervision, fixing mistakes of technical mistakes or just mistakes of judgment. So why is delegation such a hard thing to learn? Like we all go through that, right? At various points as you grow as lawyers, whether you have your own firm or whether you're, you're moving up as a partner or higher up at a bigger firm, the art of delegation is hard. It's hard to master. For me, that's for sure. It's kind of a different skill set. As a lawyer, you work, or maybe any professional, you work on honing a particular skill set, doing a deal, reviewing documents, and you get good at it. And now the skill set is teaching someone else to do that or not teaching them, but advising them, you know, guiding them. And that is different. And it's a little harder, at least initially. But if you don't do it, then they're never going to grow and you're never going to grow as a leader. They're never going to grow in as a practitioner and you're never going to grow as a leader. So it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, right? I mean, it's the first step is being able to let someone else 
do the work. Right. And perhaps, by the way, and your hope is ultimately, right, that that they become better than you. Yeah at doing that work. Yeah. I mean, that's you, know, you want to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, who may become better than you at what you do. You just have more experience at whatever. But So that's a hard thing to do, which is to give it up first. That is a hard thing yeah, to do. right? First and, and for me, the second part of it was letting them do it slightly differently than yeah. I would have done it. Exactly. Right. As a style. That's say, right. Well, they didn't do it wrong, but I would have done it this way. And then say, you know what? It doesn't need to be redone. It's great. Right. It it's accomplishes the same thing. A little different. <laughs> that is, yeah, I think that so. is the, you hit the nail on the head there. The challenge is allowing someone else the freedom to do it their way, which is different than your way. And it may not be wrong. Right. Not wrong. And you have to trust, you know, there's a certain amount of trust that, okay, their way is going to work too. And it may not always be apparent in the beginning. So with us as lawyers, right, again, you're running a practice or not. We always hear that when you teach, you know, your kids and when you teach others that are coming up, younger people, you want them, you know, they have to let them, right, either make mistakes or, you know, have quote unquote failures, things like that. In our profession, that that obviously takes on a whole different meaning. And so I always like to say with my kids and even with young lawyers, and I want them to skin their knee, right? I don't want anyone to get particularly hurt badly. I don't want them to have a massive fall. I don't want them, you know, from whatever. I'd like them to skin their knees so that they learn. But, but we have to be there as lawyers because if they fail badly, then that's a big problem. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, the truth is we're all learning on the job, no matter what level of experience we have. That's right. That's right. Learning. And that's why they, it's the practice of law, right? Not the perfection. That's, that's <laughs> right. That's the best. name of the show. That's the name of the show. <laughs> there you, you go. Addison. <laughs> we're done. We tied it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it does take time. It's good to do mentoring and provide feedback and training and guidance, but it's also really hard to peel that off when you have a full inbox and you just kind of get things done and you need to get help everyone get it done. But it's important. It's, it's actually, it's, I think, us elder statesmen of the law owe it to the younger generation. This, somebody trained us, hopefully. And so we do need to train the more junior attorneys because yeah. that's the way it works. That's life. Yeah. And also, they're working for you. That's how you get better products. <laughs> so, yeah. It's yeah. good for business and it's good for them. So shifting gears a little, we had an entrepreneur on the other day and we talked a bit about transactions and how so many entrepreneurs go it alone. We were talking about brokers, and but I think it applies to all professionals. There's always a reluctance to bring in the paid professionals on deals. And I'm curious if you have advice to the business owners out there as to when when's the right time to get you involved? And I, I think the answer is probably right now, but I'll let you answer. Well, so I would say that every business owner should have a business attorney around so that they're not just screwing it up. That doesn't have to be an M&A attorney, but you should have someone that knows corporate documents and make sure your company has been set up right and that there's been some thought prepared to the eventual exit. And so even like simple things like your tax structure, are you running your business as an S-corp? If so, that's great. If it's a C-corp, then you're going to want to think about how that's going to hurt your after-tax on the sale, assuming it's an asset sale. 
And so trying to get into an LLC, Texas, a partnership or an S corp, you know, years in advance of selling your business is probably a good idea for most business owners, most companies. It is not that often that a buyer will come in and do a stock purchase, change of control. And that's for tax reasons on the buyer's side. So I would say that as far as hiring an expert like me, first of all, I am also a business attorney. So I would, you know, I'm happy to form the company. I'm happy to be the ongoing helping with reviewing and writing contracts, making sure that you've got your intellectual property agreement signed with all your employees and contractors, you know, the basics. As far as selling the company from a legal point of view, the LOI, that's when I need to come in before you sign a letter of intent. And if you're really ahead of the game, have me take a look at, make sure there's an NDA, a confidentiality agreement in place. And have me look at that before you start sharing all of your secret confidential financial and material contracts and a playlist within prospective buyer. Because you want to make sure that your NDA with, that the buyer signs covers both the non-disclosure, but also the non-use. Because there is that rare case once in a while where the buyer is a competitor gets in under the hood and gets everything about your business and then doesn't buy. And now you're wondering, man, I just gave them my 10 top customers and the salaries for all my people. (laughs) And so you feel exposed. So the NDA should cover that. But that's a small project. And then the letter of intent, that's where it gets more substantive as far as negotiating the deal at the letter of intent stage. And then from there, it drives right into due diligence and negotiating the purchase agreement. So 100%, that's where you would need an M&A attorney like me. And that's typically where I get hired on the sales side for the owner or the business owner knows that their normal attorney isn't experienced in M&A. And that's why I get the call. A lot of times from the business attorney saying, hey, I get your help. My long-term client is now being bought and we need someone that knows how to protect them. Yeah. And of course, not every deal closes. What percentage roughly do you see that just fall apart? Or maybe the somebody withdraws? Or Most deals, in my experience, do close. So the deals that fall apart are pretty rare, pretty unusual. And so I did have a deal fall apart late last year. It was, we were at the 11th hour getting ready to close. It was a strategic acquisition. The buyer wanted to buy. The lender also wanted to approve the purchase, but there was a mezzanine lender up above the lender that at the last minute vetoed the deal and said, nope, we're not going to do this. And this was after, you know, I mean, just a total last minute rug pull. And so that was unfortunate, you know, but it happens. I mean, so that is an example of not all buyers are the same. You know, if you're on the sell side and you're evaluating different buyers and different offers, it's obviously real easy to say, well, who's paying the most, you know, and compare them that way. That's assuming you've done any kind of auction and tried to solicit multiple offers. But yeah, so the financial wherewithal is can be surprisingly an important question to ask. So, you know, are they borrowing the money? Do they have plenty of money? Is this a giant acquisition for them or a small one? These are good questions for a seller to ask a buyer. I've heard deal folks in that space, private equity guys, hedge funds talk about how sometimes the best deal is the one you don't do. But my guess is they're walking perhaps before you're involved. By the time you're involved, some of the deal terms have already been negotiated. 
maybe there is an LOI or they're approaching an LOI? So yeah, what I say is I'm assuming we've got signed a letter of intent and the letter of intent has the assumptions, it has the purchase price, you know, laid out the timing, usually if there's any escrow or holdbacks, deferred payments, seller financing, (laughs) all that should be in the letter of intent. And so in my experience, more than 90% of deals close after you get to the letter of intent stage. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't morph and change. Of course they do, you know. And a lot of times it's because this selling uh, company has accounting that has something gets discovered. So the buyer, a lot of times, will do a financial diligence, they'll do a quality of earnings, they'll go through, and they're whether they told us or not, they've got some kind of multiple in mind off of EBITDA or revenue, something, and then they'll raise some issues and say, look, you're booking this wrong. You shouldn't have done this. That lowers your EBITDA. And so then we'll have most things though, and, and this is, I think, one of the things that I would like to think sets me apart is I'm very focused on closing the deal. In fact, that's how I market myself as an attorney, a lawyer that closes deals, not a lawyer that negotiates the crap out of a deal and then it dies on the vine, <laughs> you know? So part of my quarterback skills is, because there's a problem in every deal. There's always a problem, you know, some liability, some lawsuit, some former owner that didn't get bought outright or, you know, an anti-dilution, right? There's something, there's always something. And so my job is to fix it and deal with it. And we carve it out, we put it in the agreement, we set up indemnification for it, uh, maybe there's insurance for it, maybe we delay part of the purchase price to get around that problem. I mean, there's a lot of tricks, you know, or we're going to slow down the deal and just go head on and get a settlement and release and if we can. But there's almost always a way to address the very legitimate concern every buyer has, right? Which is they don't want to overpay for something and they don't want to buy a you know, hornet's nest worth of trouble. So it's a, yeah, that is my overall approach as far as deals falling apart is we're here for a reason. The buyer has a strategic reason to buy this company. It fits into their vision, you know, their growth plan. They're either expanding into the state or they're adding on a, you know, a niche product or service. There's some reason why they want this company. And same for the owner. They're here for a reason too. A lot of times I've been running this business 10, 20, 30 years, and it hasn't been for sale, but it's for sale now. And it's because they want to retire. They got health issues. They got, you know, just a million different, they got another offer. They want to do some other business interest. So reminding everyone, reminding my client, whether I'm on the buy side or the sell side, why are we here? You know, the price is obviously important, but it's never the whole story because there's so much strategy and vision and Let's say the deal is for $25 million. Well, to the buyer, they're paying $25 million because they think they can turn it into $50 or $75 million worth of value. So we're just negotiating 25 because that's sort of the value right now. You know, but there's always a big plan, right? To hit the gas pedal and <laughs> something cool. And the team that you're buying, if there's patents that you're buying and the customer list you're buying, all these things are the catalyst, the, the leverage or, you know, however you want to describe it. So anyways, that's how I try to, I try to stay focused on the other side's interests, needs, goals, fears, and just take, tackle it head on and let's get this, you know, all out on the table, open, transparent, yeah. right, comfortable. 
integrity. You know what we're doing. So when we say the answer is yes, you know, number one, no one's lying. And number two, they actually know the answer really is yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we, yeah. you know. That's what I like. I mean, we do, we're not M&A lawyers by any stretch. We're uh, insolvency guys, but a lot of insolvency cases have an M&A component of a buy or a sell in or out of bankruptcy. And I always enjoy that aspect because it's, you know, it's the one area where you're working together towards a common goal as buyer and seller, as opposed to litigation's always plaintiff defendant. Usually you get to a point where you're working together towards a settlement or some resolution, but consensus building is, it can be more fun or less stressful than battle. So let's continue to build consensus. Yeah. Consensus, what's the plural of consensus? Consensus. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah. I like that. There you go. <laughs> Addison, the consensus is that this was a lot of fun. And I'm sure that whoever out there is listening to this episode will love it. And I expect that they're going to as a result, to sh- as a sign of gratitude and to show us their love, they're going to give us a five-star review. They're going to share this episode with their friends and family, maybe some of your friends and family, Addison, and subscribe. If you like the show, please subscribe. Tell all your friends and family about it, and we will see you next time on The Practice. Wow, well done, Jeff. Like that? Good readout. <laughs> thank you, Addison. Addison. This is fun. Nelson, thank you as always. That was so great. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Brett. I have subscribed already and I look forward to your future podcast. (laughs) Thanks again. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.